today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. A leaked video clip of the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, telling First Nations leader he is upset over time management at a recent meeting has surfaced. Uh, A Saskatchewan chief says the video posted online showing the PM telling First Nations he's upset about how time was managed at a recent meeting is unfortunate. Uh, They went on to say, this is the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations Chief Bobby Cameron, says the closed-door meeting was productive, but the frustration in the video is real. The video surfaced online over the weekend and shows Trudeau telling the plans. uh, The plan was to meet with about eight people for an hour, but many others showed up and there wasn't time for everyone to speak. I am really, really upset about this. Uh, And it wasn't for me to interrupt interrupt the, the, the previous speakers, but Bobby, there shouldn't have been uh, every single person speaking for eight minutes uh, in the previous meeting. All right, let's bring in David Aiken, Global News. I was watching this report last night, David. Uh, fascinating stuff. What does this say? What does this... Well, first of all, what happened? Explain well, it, what, it, what transpired here. It's just plain weird, Scott. Okay, so this is last Wednesday in Saskatoon. The Liberals were there for their uh, end-of-summer caucus retreat, two days of meetings. I was there. I went into that meeting with the FSIN, that's the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations. These are uh, First Nations chiefs from, from uh, Saskatchewan. So I went into the photo op, uh, as did many journalists, pretty standard routine thing, going the, at the top of the meeting. Trudeau says a few words, or he to do this or do that, and out we go. Now, this was a meeting that's important to know. It was called by the FSIN. It was held on FSIN territory. It was the FSIN's request. And the FSIN controlled the invite list. They know who was in the room, all the chiefs. They invited. You didn't get in the room unless you were a chief on the FSIN list. So that's important to note. So they had an hour for the meeting. Getting an hour of any prime minister's time is usually a pretty significant thing. And if you ask for an hour-long meeting with the PM, you presumably want to get some stuff done. You want to get some work done on water on some First Nations or some infrastructure or education. They have things they want to get done. What happened, as it turned out, was the PM went in expecting to meet with eight chiefs. Uh, Chief Bobby Cameron, who you just mentioned, he was in the meeting. He's the head of the FSIN. He said, I'm going to bring in eight chiefs. He brought in 40. So 40 people, all who just wanted to basically unload on the PM for an hour and nothing got done. And then at the end of this meeting... Somebody in that room on the FSIN side, one of these chiefs, whips out the smartphone and starts taping the PM just at the end of the meeting and then puts that up on YouTube. And it's, I think it's like six or seven minutes long. It's, so it's, it's an, an interesting uh, view of the PM being very quite candid. He's clearly frustrated that this has been an unproductive meeting. And, uh, you know, you guys said we we're going to do this and you decided not to do that. And he, he says in the video, I got a hard out. And he did because he had his whole caucus and reporters waiting uh, to launch their two days of meetings. Um, And so there we go. We have what I think is a pretty strange situation for the FSIN. So the next time they want a meeting with the PM or they want to negotiate, you know, in confidence with anybody, who's going to trust them? You guys going to whip out your smartphone and start taping me and posting that online? What's remarkable about the FSIN statement is there was no condemning the practice. All they said was it wasn't our executive or staff. They have the invite list. We asked them for it. They wouldn't release it. They must know who did it. Was the FSIN trying to corner the PM here? I mean, you know... uh, It looks to me like at least one chief was. Bobby Cameron says the frustration in the video is real. So what's he referring to? Well, I think he's referring to the fact that some chiefs... One chief says, you know, I drove four hours here and I'm not getting my whatever. Um, And the PM is frustrated that... You know, he, he was there to listen to what's going on from eight people, not from 40, and to see if there was some stuff that could get done, um, as, I, as I mentioned, on some, some treaty issues, some land issues that these First Nations folks have. So that, that was a frustration. And I want to contrast, like, it, let me just back up a bit. If you cover sort of um, Crown Indigenous politics, there are a variety of ways that Indigenous leaders approach this, and, and some that are tricky. Um, because they're responding to their own constituents. There are those uh, who say, listen, okay, we'll sit down, negotiate in good faith with Canada, and we'll try and get some things done, and they, they tend to you know, conduct themselves as a, it's a business-to-business meeting. But there's a lot of First Nations activists and supporters in the broader Canadian community who say, 
that's not what we should be doing. We're a sovereign nation. We demand everything should be out in the open. And they're, they're, you know, they're a bit more radical. They don't think that First Nations chiefs who sit down with the PM should do that, that they're sellouts. Hmm. Um, and so they have to deal with those. So this may have been an activist who just wanted to make a point rather than get something done who released this video. And if you look at the reception, again, among the sort of indigenous activist community of this video, that's it. They see a prime minister who is lecturing First Nations chiefs on how the spirit of reconciliation ought to be uh, acknowledged, um, and they find the PM is way out of line. When I put this up on my social feeds, I would say the reactions, you know, about three to one, one being that the PM's out of line, the rest is sort of saying, it was your meeting, the FSIN, this is really... uh, you know, not the way to conduct business, uh, you know, if you, want to, if you want to negotiate with anybody. This isn't good for either side, is it, David? How can it be? I mean, where's the advantage uh, I, I, to even po- po- posting the video? Because many have said this is a common issue. You go in with a meeting and you try to be constructive, but then there's too many decision makers or, or too many splinter groups on the other side. Uh, it, well, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that, that is, the, that is the, the crown indigenous problem writ large. That it is a hugely complex problem involving 680 First Nations, and then we've got Métis, and then we've got Inuit people, all with mm-hmm. different governance traditions, uh, all, all on sort of different uh, scales in terms of their economic sophistication, economic capacity. It's a tremendously complex problem. And so the way this government, and, and I've got to say the Harper government as well would approach it, was let's bite off a small chunk. Let's focus with this First Nation on this particular problem and see if we can get some stuff done. That, the pace, and that means that things move slowly. And so there's great frustration among many Canadians, including Indigenous Canadians, that stuff isn't getting done. And so they want to show up uh, politicians like Justin Trudeau, and that was the attempt here. So does it reflect badly on Trudeau? I'm not sure. I mean, this is really going to depend on, on where you sit. Again, going back to my feeds, which is usually a good sort of thumbnail, I, I was getting comments like, I'm no fan of Trudeau's, but, you know, I'd be frustrated, too, if, you know, a meeting got hijacked this way. So we'll see. Um, you know, I definitely would say that, it, by and large, on the issue of reconciliation and Crown Indigenous relations, Trudeau kind of oversold, I think, and has underdelivered. Yes, mm. he's got some things done. There are some drinking water advisories that are being lifted at a reasonable pace, but others are showing up. Still not enough money for education. One of the things Trudeau promised way back in 2015, he would immediately, and that was the phrase in the platform, immediately lift what's called a 2% funding cap. So First Nations get their funding increased every year by 2%. Um, They say that's not been enough, and Trudeau agreed and said he'd immediately lift it to some other increase per year, but he hasn't. We're three years in, and he has not yet done that. That's a tremendous frustration for First Nations leaders who are counting on some additional funds to help with the health, education, welfare in their communities. So it's a big problem, and as I say, you know, doing this sort of taking a confidential closed-door meeting and putting part of it on the public record doesn't really help establish trust. Mm. Some, are there some groups out there, David, that do not want to see the PM and these groups become closer? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and they're mostly on the, as I say, this is a, a faction on the, in, on the indigenous side of things. Mm-hmm. This, this particular video surfaced on the account of a guy named Russ Diabo. And uh, Russ is a, uh, a Mohawk. Uh, he lives near Montreal. He just ran unsuccessfully for the, uh, to be the uh, national chief for the Assembly of First Nations. And Russ is one of those guys I was talking about. He does not like these chiefs sitting down negotiating at what he, he calls them termination tables. That's his phrase. It's a phrase used in the community of activists like him that say when, the, when these chiefs sit down with the prime minister, they're really looking to terminate the rights that First Nations people have and lead them to a path of assimilation and extinction. That's Rusty Abbo's worldview, and it's a worldview shared by a significant portion of, I would say, the indigenous population in Canada. And so they will look at any means to frustrate the chiefs who go to these meetings, as well as frustrate the meetings themselves. And uh, by showing this video or taking this video, you could say, you know, that he's, he's trying to further that mission to uh, see that these sorts of talks do not succeed.
So where was the confusion here, David? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, you got an hour with the premier, with the prime minister. I'm sure everything is quite tight and structured, and I'm sure that the FSIN, uh, the FSIN would know that. So where was the breakdown here? Was it was the FSIN not was this not managed correctly? Was the meeting not managed correctly? Were they not prepared, or were they trying to make this point? Good, good questions, all of them. And, and so relying on our colleagues in Saskatoon who know this group, know Chief Cameron better than I do. I was really only meeting them for the first time when I was out there on Wednesday. Uh, let me say this. Chief Cameron has been a vocal and ever-present advocate for his community, for the FSIN. That you ask him for a TV interview or a radio interview, he's never shy about getting on the radio or getting on a TV and saying something. Yesterday, every news agency in the country said, Chief Cameron, can we talk to you? And he didn't want to do any interviews. He didn't. He didn't provide the list of the attendees at this meeting. They issued a statement in which they didn't apologize to the prime minister, didn't just say it was unfortunate that people think this is a negative thing. We want to meet with the guy again. I'd like to answer, have all those questions answered, Scott. Like, what, what was this person trying to do? The only way we're really going to get that answered is we can ask the person who taped it and gave it to Rusty Abbo. That's the person who knows why they did this. Uh, was it to upset the meeting? Were they upset about something? But again, uh, we do know that the PMO was expecting eight people, and they got 40, and those 40 were the guests of Chief Cameron. So what, what, was the the re- what was the reaction in the room, David, after the Prime Minister said what he said? What was Cameron's response to that? Oh, well, he, he was just, uh, I, to be honest, I don't think that we heard from him. We heard from some other chiefs. But the camera was stopped, or the recording ended, before Chief Cameron really said much. Uh, when, when the PM started sort of going through this thing, this is crazy, what's going on, Cameron was in some other part of the room, because you can see him moving behind the Prime Minister to the seat that he was assigned. He was sitting, for the start of the meeting, when I was in the room, he was sitting two or three seats down from the PM. So... You know, it's hard to say. We can't see that reaction. It's really hard to see. And if you've seen the video, Scott, I know we're talking on the radio here. Um, you know, it's up on our website, globalnews.ca. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it is kind of grainy. It's literally someone just pulled out, you know, uh, a smartphone. I, I don't, you know, who knows what kind it was, what kind of quality. We're, we're inside. It's a, it's a small boardroom in a hotel. And it's pointed at the PM, and they've zoomed in a bit. So now it's becoming even a bit more blurry. So it's, it is kind of hard to see. You can hear it pretty clearly, but it's kind of hard to see all the details in the room. But um, David, would there knows? not would there not be an official agenda on this well before the prime minister even sure. got there? Absolutely. So so for any meeting, and I, I do access to information requests for these all the time. For any meeting that the prime minister or any minister is going to have with any group or individual, typically a uh, a small briefing note is prepared so that the the, the minister is prepared for whatever they want to talk about. So in this case, the prime minister's staff would have talked ahead of time with Chief Cameron saying, okay, uh, who's going to be there? Just so we can get a little background on the individuals there so the prime minister knows who's, who's he's talking to. Um, what are some of the issues we want to discuss? So the, a little briefing out what we prepared. So sure, we, we can, look, we can ac- access that information through an access to information request uh, here in Ottawa. It might take six or eight months for us to get that document. Mm. That's the pace at which things move. But that would have been the normal course of events. There would definitely have been an agenda, some biographies of the, of the expected participants, and, uh, and a background note on some of the issues the FSIN wanted to discuss with the Prime Minister. So what's the relationship between the Prime Minister and Cameron now? I mean, how do you move forward on this? This isn't an issue that is new. I mean, this happens all the time. It's a common, it's a common um, uh, I don't say complaint, but certainly issue that arises when these meetings are called. How do you, how do you move forward on this? Yeah, so what it, it, is, it is very uncommon. In fact, I can't recall any instance of a video being leaked of a closed-door meeting. It's true, and, and people should know this. Yeah, quite often after a meeting, maybe a participant will come up to us and say, you know, don't don't say you got this from me, but uh, the prime minister and I talked about X, Y, or Z. I wasn't referring to the recording of the video. I was referring yeah. more to the, how the meeting went off the rails. Right. So, yes, I'm sure meetings go off the rails all the time. And, and that's what people come out and tell us. Then the meeting went off the rails, but we don't often have a video. So how do people move forward? This is where I would have expected Chief Cameron to phone the Prime Minister's office, say, listen, I'm sorry that happened. I don't know who did it, or I'm trying to find out, you know, let, let's meet again. I'll make sure it's a small group or something like that. I don't know. That, that, 
you'd think that would be the approach. Apparently that has not happened yet. But both sides in their public statements say we're happy to meet again. They both say that aside from what you see in the video, the meeting was productive, um, except for that little bit at the end. And um, How do you sell that, though? Well, this is what both sides say. So, you know, maybe, again, you're the prime minister's office, and maybe privately you're reading them the riot act, but publicly you're telling us, you know, you don't want to embarrass them so that they can move forward. I mean, this is the chiefs of uh, Saskatchewan First Nations, and those First Nations have to deal with the federal government. The federal government's got to deal with them. So maybe not make a odd situation worse. I don't know. That that seems to be, from the public stand, what they're both doing. But but I'm putting more emphasis or I'm putting more responsibility on the FSIN mm. to maybe have a more fulsome explanation of uh, what the heck happened here. So last question, David. What does this do to tre- uh, truth and reconciliation? Is this harder than uh, the prime minister thought? It definitely is harder than the prime minister thought. This meeting, when we didn't have to have this meeting to to know that you'll remember that one of the things that uh he said was uh he was going to essentially adopt uh all 98 or whatever it was recommendations of the trc mm. and you know we, we are actually check marking them as we get close to an election maybe there's 20 of them that he's got to he's got a long way to go still all right david aiken is with us global news make sure you're watching global news tonight at 5 30 and 6 for more on this david as always thank you for your time much appreciated Hey, no problem, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A Liberal MP yesterday crossed the floor on the first day of Parliament to join the Conservative Party. Leona Alislev. Why couldn't I said it there a minute ago perfectly? Alislev. Leona Alislev crossed the floor from the left to the right yesterday. Here's what she had to say. My attempts to raise my concerns with this government were met with silence. And as I said in the House, the government must be challenged openly. And for me to publicly criticize the government as a Liberal would undermine the government and according to my code of conduct, be dishonorable. All right, let's bring in team uh, Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, who serves as an advisor to a national party leader and federal cabinet ministers. Tim is with us now. Tim, thanks for the uh, time. Much appreciated. How big a deal is this? Uh, well, Brandon Shear was a big deal. Uh, he'd been uh, been the subject of lots of uh, consternation and disruption, as you know, when Maxine Bernier left his team. So to pick up a new team player... Uh, from the governing Liberals, just as Parliament was about to start, uh, was a big day for him. A little bit of a uh, little bit of a win, which I'm sure he'll take, and I'm sure the Prime Minister wasn't delighted that again, with Parliament kicking off and the criticism of the opposition being that he hasn't had the best summer to lose a member of his team was a bit disappointed. Talk about, Talk the, about the, timing the timing in all of, in this. All of this. I mean, this, I mean, this looks like a PR person's dream. <laughs> well, it depends which which color jersey they have mm-hmm. on. If they have a blue conservative jersey, yeah, they it's uh, their sort of dream. I mean, uh, the, the whole day was being set up yesterday to be a day where the liberals were going to have start the day by debating a new free trade agreement, not NAFTA, as we know that's not done, but the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They were going to talk about the accomplishments that they had uh, laid out. They were all ready to respond to the opposition's cries of, uh, of their weaknesses, weakness and ineffectiveness. So when Andrew Scheer uh, walked out uh, in the, the lobby of the House of Commons just before question period started to say that he had scooped a liberal and that for former liberal and that former liberal MP was standing next to him and that former liberal MP is um, uh, Leona Alislev, as you said, but in terms of her resume, a former uh, Canadian Air Force uh, uh, captain. She'd worked with Bombardier and IBM, a person of accomplishment, somebody from the 905, um, a seat that the Conservatives want to get back. All all of that was a, was, a, was a real blow to Trudeau. And as I say, hearts were glowing on Team Blue uh, that they were able to pull off that PR coup. Is this sour grapes or shifting of opinion? Who knows, Scott, right? I mean, you'll never quite know what the, the, the truth is. Um, and I think, I guess, it depends from where you look at it, uh, what opinion you'll form. It, it is unusual 
for somebody on the government side to go uh, from a government position and sit in opposition. It usually doesn't happen that way. It's usually the government is poaching somebody from opposition to join their team. So that move is a bit different. Um, she only won her seat by a thousand or so votes last time. That riding uh, she sits in was won provincially quite handily uh, by uh, one of Doug Ford's candidates. I don't know if that plays a factor. Uh, she's a first-term MP, so she hasn't secured a pension and the benefits that come with that. She needs to win again. I don't know if that's a motivating factor. She said uh, that uh, she wasn't happy with the leadership of, of Mr. Trudeau on, on some economic issues and on, on the global stage. So truth is probably a mixture of all of the above. Does she know something the PM doesn't? Is she getting rumblings from her own constituents, do you think? How does she handle her constituents here? Um, I- I don't know if she's getting her colleagues. Some of her colleagues have been a little irritated over the summer, particularly some of the eastern ones. Uh, and by east, in this case, I mean Atlantic Canada. Um, they've been a little frustrated that the prime minister has, uh, in their view, been not as focused on uh, bread and butter economic policy and, and more in, inclined to get into the bigger values-based reshaping of society stuff uh, that they aren't as fond of. Uh, so she probably heard a little bit of that. It, it seems she was um, uh, pursued by some conservative MPs with some background in uh, in military policy and in the military. So they might have found a little bit of common ground. I don't think Justin Trudeau's quaking in his boots, but he's going to want to make sure that uh, he he gets a full grasp of how his caucus is feeling. They were just all together in Saskatchewan last week, and they'll be all together again tomorrow in Ottawa. All caucuses get together on Wednesday. So I'm sure he'll be taking the temperature to see if there's a broader uh, bit of anxiety that's set in the Liberal ranks. What about the uh, constituents? How does she sell this when she goes back home? Uh, well, she's got to somehow convince them that, and uh, she started this, I guess, already, that, you know, regardless of the jersey that she's wearing, she's still the same person they elected. Now, you'll well know um, many people will elect an MP, particularly a newer one. They, they, they may like what they see in the individual, but often they're voting for the prime minister. So I think she's going to have to convince them that she can still be an effective representative for their riding. Uh, their voice will still get heard and that uh, she can still make a difference. Um, so that may be a tough thing to do, but she may also be confident that, again, there's enough of a conservative base out there that they may believe the tide is going to turn and Sheer could be prime minister. So perhaps she's calculated the right way. Who knows? Uh, Andrew Shear, as you said, uh, you know, big smile on the face with, uh, with you know, the, the person who, I guess, turncoat went from one to the other. Um, uh, people, he said in his speech something along the lines of, you know, people who voted for Justin Trudeau are, are second guessing, are, are, perhaps are second guessing their uh, decision, just like mm-hmm. this politician does. Does th- or did? Does that resonate with Canadians? Uh, well, the five people that may have watched that at two p.m. <laughs> Other than you and me. <laughs> well, and we probably have pretty formed opinions on all of this. Mm-hmm. I, I mean. He hopes it resonates, and that's the message he's going to want to drive, and he's going to use this MP's uh, MP's uh, defection to his side as a way to rally people around it. I mean, he, he needed this, right? I mean, I'm sure you were covering it, the Bernier story, mm-hmm. and, and Bernier potentially undermining the conservative coalition. So he's going to want to go out and say, look, like I said to you, I can attract people, and this is somebody who ran under a liberal banner, and if you're not happy, do what this MP has done. Come and support us. So, like like any good political salesperson, he's going to push that and, and pull it and torque it and twist it uh, for all it's worth. And in the end, this doesn't have anywhere near the impact of the Maxime Bernier uh, situation. Well, again, and who knows where the Bernier thing is going to go, right? I mean, Bernier, yes, was the, all came within a, a few votes of being the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, he's certainly a much higher, <clears throat> excuse me, profile member of Parliament than, and no disrespect to Miss Alice Lev, uh, but. 
people, more people know who Maxine Bernier is. So, yeah, again, we'll see what Bernier's People's Party of Canada is able to do over time and whether it cuts into the conservative support. Um, how can it how can it not, though? Will it not at least eat something away from them, Tim? Well, it depends how effective he is, right? I mean, it's really fascinating. He calls it the People's Party of Canada. I've only seen one person uh, come out and talk about the People's Party of Canada, be front and center. That that's Maxime. If, if he's if there's polls, including from our own polling company, Abacus, and from Annals Research, who say that Mr. Bernier could, you know, potentially get as much as seventeen percent of the support of Canadians. He could drag votes away uh, from the Conservatives in Ontario, which makes something like the Alislev move maybe more beneficial to Andrew Scheer than people realize. Um, that's where he could have a difference, but we just don't know yet what kind of sustaining impact Mr. Bernier is going to have or will this fizzle out. But certainly, yes, Scott, it would still be a concern for the Conservatives. Will the will Conservatives support Bernier knowing it is splitting the vote? And, you know, I mean, let's be honest, Bernier is not going to beat out Andrew Scheer. So uh, at the end of the day, will Conservatives support Bernier knowing it's it's a wasted vote? Uh, well, you know, or even more importantly, uh, for conservatives, it may mean another term of Justin Trudeau. Yeah. And, and I think that's the message Andrew Scheer is going to try and drive, that, look, I'm your best alternative as well. Never mind your broader dissatisfied uh, liberals with uh, Justin Trudeau. If you're conservative and you mightn't like the fact that I'm not as pure as you would want on all policies, but you're going to get Justin Trudeau if you vote for Maxime Bernier. So, uh, that that's the message he's going to drive. I'm sure he hopes it will be effective. Honestly, right now, uh, hard to tell if uh, whether he'll even need to use that message. But I suspect it will make the rounds if Mr. Bernier has some ascension. Because the happiest guy uh, with a strong Maxime Bernier party and a weak NDP would be Justin Trudeau, because that creates the conditions for him uh, to win quite handily. Um, getting back to Andrew Scheer, uh, is he going to resonate with Canadians when when he is up against a Justin Trudeau, considering the the differences in personality and charisma and such? I think it depends where you are. Um, I, I mean, look, uh, certainly the prime, prime minister is a greater known commodity. He is, as you say, a more polished performer, more charismatic. Um, I think year has got to find a way not to be Justin Trudeau. Uh, he can't mimic him because that's not going to be the proposition that will work for him. I think he's just got to show as the opportunities come to him through the course of this year, through debates that will happen during the election campaign, through advertising, that he's somebody worth considering uh, voting for. He can't If he tries to uh, imitate Justin Trudeau, he will not win. What will the Prime Minister's biggest challenges be in this election? Um, liberal arrogance, liberal, the traditional things. I, I mean, the Liberals didn't have great news last week, as you know. The, the federal fisheries, the former federal fisheries minister, current intergovernmental affairs minister, Mr. LeBlanc, a well-known liberal M, uh, uh, MP for a long time, was um, sanctioned by the ethics commissioner that's the third liberal including the prime minister and the finance minister who've had that happen if people get a sense that the trudeau is going against his brand trudeau says he's about the middle class but if it appears to more than uh 40 percent of canadians or 39.5 percent of canadians that mr trudeau is not true to that and liberals are more interested in liberals then that uh, will be a problem for justin trudeau um, you know, he's got some assets in, in the fact that uh, he's more popular than the American president. He plays off of that. Uh, he's mm-hmm. going to use his relationship or or conflictual adversarial dynamic with the new Ontario Premier, Premier Ford, to his advantage, I suspect. As Premier yeah, Canadians, Canadians like it when the Prime Minister says negative things about Trump, when he roughs him up a bit. Oh, they lo- yeah, yeah. They, they do, right? Yeah. So um, Trudeau, was, but he can't overreach either. So yeah. I think liberal internal dynamics are their biggest vulnerability. Some of the economic issues may be problematic, like Trans Mountain in the West would be a, a bigger issue for him, particularly in Alberta, but it may help him in B.C. 
Uh, and uh, those are some of the things I'd be looking at. What about the idea of Andrew Shear selling, and he did this the other day, that he can't get it done, whether it's the uh, whether it's the pipeline, whether it's the situation he finds himself in now with uh, NAFTA. In, in NAFTA or even Indigenous leaders in Saskatchewan. Um, is he over-promising and under-sell? Is he uh, over-promising and under-delivering? Yes. Um, question is, though, can Shear get enough people to say we'll say that that is a significant concern for them right now usually um your listeners will know you'll know governments defeat themselves but they usually do that after a longer time in power not that often uh, that canadian prime ministers who win a majority in their first term are defeated when they go for a second term so there's a lot of history on Justin Trudeau's side. Now, we live in a very different world uh, where disruption happens more quickly, so Scheer will hope he can create disruption by getting people to buy into the fact that uh, that Justin Trudeau hasn't brought them the results he's promised them and that now his time should be up as opposed to four or six years after the fact. With that, is now the right time for someone with Scheer's image? You know, we don't need the flash, we need action here. Could that could that work in his favor? The fact that he is the polar opposite. Yeah, I mean, if Trudeau also over over overacts, uh, Trudeau has a pattern sometimes of overreaching, um, and if he is um, undisciplined, he being the prime minister, and overreacts or over or stretches and uh, stretches his credibility then Shear might have an opportunity. I mean, Shear's going to try and do a little bit of what Harper did. Look, I'm the everyman. I'm the middle-class person you can relate to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be steady, uh, and I'm not going to try and reorganize all of society. I'm just interested in making sure your pocketbook works for you the way it should. So he's going to have to find constituencies of voters that are going to like that message and drive that hard. Is this an issue? Is this will this be a campaign of social issues versus economic? Uh, again, the prime minister certainly selling a lot of social issues. Is are those bread and butter issues for the average Canadian? No, but they work with certain cohorts of voters, right? I mean, the Liberals have been always very good at casting themselves as more progressive than conservatives. Whether that's actually true or not, of course, is debatable. Justin Trudeau um, finds that that more progressive attitude is projected on key social issues, helps him with important voting groups like millennials who support him, different cohorts of uh, female voting groups that support him. So that's why he does it. I'm sure he uh, believes in, in, in some of uh, of those messages as well. I'm not trying to discredit him. Uh, so he's going to go hard in those areas uh, on certain issues in, in hopes that that will make sure that those voting groups turn out en masse for liberal candidates and he's able to be reelected. How will his, and last question here, how will his second term be different than the first if he, if he gets reelected? We've got to get one first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's, even, well, let's take it one step before that, the, the campaign. How will the second campaign be different from the first and if reelected, the term? Well, I don't know. If, well, Stephen Harper won't be running, but you'll hear a lot about him. Uh, you saw that yesterday in the House of Commons. He's going to try and cast Sheer as a as a, um, uh, as a as a different version of of Harper. Uh, he's also going to cast himself as Harper cast himself in 2015 as uh, as the most experienced, and he will be of the three political leaders, the mm. uh, main leaders, able to steer the country. So that'll be kind of interesting to watch. And so I can't. Say, I guess you can't use that. He's not ready line anymore. <laughs> oh no! Now, now he's got his PhD in governance, yeah. uh, Scott. So yeah, he, he's ready. He'll, he's going to tell you that a lot. So those will be some of the differences for sure. Uh, that moving forward, will we see a different campaign? How different will it be in the sense that he is the the elder statesman now? Well, I think he's going to try and play up, um, you know, some of his gravitas. I think he's going to, instead of casting himself as the elder statesman, I think he's going to try and cast himself as the leader of progressive forces around the world, the liberals have spent a lot of time buffering Justin Trudeau's brand internationally. So that allows Trump to enter the campaign, and, and that's something Trudeau wants. So I suspect 
that will be something that most certainly happens. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies, and has served as advisor to National Party leaders and federal cabinet ministers. Tim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good to talk to you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk everything from Emmys to Stormy Daniels to Donald Trump to Coca-Cola and pot and, and what have you. We'll bring in Ryan McCormick, a Goldman McCormick PR based in the States. First, let's listen to a clip from the Emmys last night. Many are saying the most exciting uh, part of the Emmys was when there was an engagement right on stage. Jan, you are the sunshine in my life. And mom was right. Don't ever let go of your sunshine. You wonder why I don't like to call you my girlfriend? Because I want to call you my wife. How do we know that? What if he said, no, I don't want to, that's not what I mean. You you know, yeah, I'd like to eventually marry this woman, but I'm not going to do it right now. I mean, he was just, how, how could we all assume that, you know, he just happened to have the ring in his pocket. He just happened to be wanting to do it right then. And he knew he was going to win. Wow. It's amazing how this sounds like the ultimate PR plan. Uh, Let's bring in Ryan McCormick, Goldman McCormick PR, and is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's an honor to be here with you and your listeners. Uh, Let's start with the uh, Emmys. Your thought on this show, was that the most exciting part? Yes. (laughs) The rest of it probably could have cured some parts of our insomnia, but the fact that we saw a live wedding proposal was pretty interesting. I was kind of hoping she would say no, because that would be the most epic wedding fail of all time. And you have to wonder what's really going to happen. I mean, I was talking to a couple of psychologists today saying if they're, if they're genuine, if it's loving, and some people, they'll just do these things in a public forum. That was probably the largest public uh, wedding proposal I've ever seen. At the end of the day, uh, what are the chances of this all working out for them? I mean, not in, the sense, not in the sense of their marriage, but that all of the planets being correctly aligned, that he actually wins and gets to do it this way. I don't know. It's pretty unusual, pretty amazing. But the fact that my wife has been married to me for eight years can show that the impossible is possible. So <laughs> I figure that if she could stay with me for eight years, that this is going to probably going to work out very highly, highly probable. It's going to work out. All right. Let's uh, talk about this show. Many are, are talking about the validity of, of traditional television and these award shows. It almost, uh, you know, if I hadn't known any better, I would. I thought I was watching Saturday Night Live. Your thoughts on that? Well, you're probably correct because there's a tremendous Saturday Night Live had a tremendous amount of influence. You had the two uh, regular cast members that were hosting, or Michael's produced it, and you had other cast members throughout the entire event. So Saturday Night Live has a tremendous influence and in, was infused into this program. So I think you're completely right about that. And you know, I think that these award shows need to do things edgier bring in more people because they can, despite the fact that they consider this to be a wonderful show, the ratings are continuing to decline. And I'm wondering if it has to do with the fact that there's too many award shows that are going mm. on. I mean, we all work in various fields and industries, and there isn't an award show every other month where we pat ourselves on the back for doing a good job. There's no award shows for parents, and I think that they deserve much more awards than people who like, do make-believe all day. What about the diversity push? I mean, obviously, a lot of these award, sh- award shows have been labeled in the past as not being diverse enough. Uh, it seemed that they went out of their way to do it, but not only that, but to sell it. Yes, they're really doing it and they're pushing it out there. And even though it seems like it's over the top, they are pushing over the top. It is good for them because I think that they're probably restoring faith in people to do this. So the fact that they have a variety of people out there doing it, um, coming on, is wonderful. I, however, I also feel at the same time they're also alienating a large portion of their base by not including other shows that are very popular. You think a show like Family Guy, which has been on the air for almost 20 years, would be nominated for a TV show, and it, it is not. And so I think there are a lot of other popular shows that would probably draw a huge audience had they been nominated. So I still feel one way they are diversifying, but they are kind of keeping the audience for like a certain demographic. Anything new in this show? Anything different? Anything groundbreaking? Anything that will set it apart from the others as they try to move forward with this? Yes, I would say groundbreaking is that I didn't see a barrage of people saying, you know, attacking the president of the United States or saying something that would be, make these outrageous statements. I think other shows in the past, people get up and they just tout their political perspectives, and it's a big scandal, and the conservative media in the U.S. will jump on that thing. So we didn't, I didn't think there was a tremendous amount of that. So that was a, a pleasant departure. So it seemed like they were actually focused on the entertainment as large. Why don't you think they did? 
you know, maybe they were. I, I don't know. Maybe they thought that this certainly was with the S- certainly with the SNL angle, they could have. <laughs> they could have. But I'm sure what happened was they saw what was happening with the NFL in the U.S. and that people were getting political about protesting. And they saw that the NFL ratings were going down and the people behind the Emmys were saying, look, we cannot have our ratings suffer any lower, despite the fact that they dropped. So I believe that the Emmys have been very political. They would have uh, alienated a lot more of their audience and the ratings would have plummeted. So maybe they were told ahead of time, don't share your political perspectives. But as far as this program goes, uh, I'd say that they did a lot of innovative things. Very creative. They seem to, to be as, uh, pay as many homages to people as possible. And going forward, I mean, if they continue to innovate and do creative things and bring in more shows, they'll probably have a much larger audience in the future. Should they been, have been as aggressive as, say, Nike has been? I don't know. Speaking of the NFL. I don't know if they could have afforded it. I mean, Nike is a, is a brand unto itself. I'm reading the book by Phil Knight, and I was just doing another. I talked about how Nike grew their business by 50% from 2007 to 2017. So they are an edgy, you know, aggressive, incredible company that knows exactly what they're doing. And because Nike has a, a brand and an image and they're really pushing things out, I don't know if they have, I don't know if they could be doing, I'm sorry, I don't know if the Emmys can be doing what Nike is doing. Because the Emmys have to appeal to so many other people, whereas Nike has their target audience and mm. they aggressively pursue them. How do they balance this issue uh, with Kaepernick and the NFL? Obviously, they've got ties to the NFL, they've got contracts with them, and they also do with Kaepernick. How do they, how do they balance that? I think what happened is that they realized, as far as balancing goes, I think that they made a smart move and, and took a gamble and said, look, this individual, Kaepernick, appeals to a number of people who are trying to sell our shirts to, and they, they captivated him. And Kaepernick is also much deeper. It is also a reputation of President Trump. There's a lot of people in the U.S. that didn't, do not like him. So I think that they tapped into the emotional aspects about it. And they had other athletes that were kind of coming to the Nike's you know, cause so as far as balancing goes, I mean, I, I don't even know if there's a word to describe balancing because Nike went from taking a loss to having their all-time highest sales. So I think the balancing is that people are getting sick of it. We tend to have something happen in the U.S., and I'm sure it happens across the world, where there is a crisis of now. People get all emotional, and they get all their emotions out, they get all their anger out, but it's done in about 24 hours because there's another crisis that will happen, mm. and people get distracted by something else. So the only thing that sticks, at least on the U.S. front, is any form of racism, and Nike was completely clear about that. So they're, they're fine. Uh, what about the fact that Donald Trump has spoken out about this in the past, and specifically with the NFL? It, it, are, you, are you surprised they wanted to even wade in on any of this? I was really surprised. I really, I was really surprised that Nike wanted to tap into that negative emotions and revisit all those negative feelings associated with the protests. And what happened was something strange occurred. In the first 24 hours, a lot of people are upset. Then the people started pro, um, posting videos of themselves burning their shoes and burning their apparel. And I think that caused a backlash among other people because they're saying, well, why don't you just take that those shoes, shirts and shoes and give them to homeless people. Mm. So I think the tide quickly turned around, and I think that the president will continue to attack the NFL and continue to put things out there, but he also has a lot of people that are against him. So even people that weren't supporters of Nike before, I think became supporters of Nike afterwards because they saw the president was against Nike and the president was pro- was against the NFL. So it's very strange about what happens in our country. People can get pol- polarized very quickly and turn around, and I don't know... Well, what the sentiments are in your country, but they are pretty emotionally pro- provoked and uh, reactive in our country. Uh, so has this Nike campaign worked for them, or is it too early to tell? Oh, I think it's worked very well for mm. Nike, the campaign. They, they, they had all-time record sales, and they got a tremendous amount of free advertising. Yeah. I mean, when this thing first happened, I was doing at least 20, 20 different shows talking about Nike, so all this time that they could be spending on other topics, they're talking about Nike. And again, you have people that were very pro the brand, people that were against the brand. But Nike got a tremendous amount of media exposure as a direct result of putting this out there. So I think Nike, in, you know, in the short term, I think it hurt them. But in the long term, or even the short to long term, they've, they've made a tremendous gain. Does this change the way people view the president? You're talking with relation to how the he's Nike been campaign and, and how he's responded to the NFL. I do. Are not, they promoting that narrative, Nike? 
I, I don't know if they necessarily are. I, as far as the president goes, I, there are people who are going to be very passionate about him, and there are going to be people who are completely against the president. Mm-hmm. And I think the only thing that's going to change their opinions about the president is the state of the economy. And if the economy continues to do well, I think he'll be okay. But if the economy goes south and people are not able to provide for, the, for their families, that's when you're going to see the real negative turn. So I almost feel at this point in time, he's got his supporters, he's got people that are completely against him, and those in between, I think they're all dependent upon how well they're able to provide for their families. So whether he attacks the NFL or has other things happen with uh, you know whatever person he may or be accused of having an affair with, I don't think it's going to change perspective. There you go. My next question in regard to the Stormy Daniels book, The Guardian do a piece, doing a piece on this. They've got a copy of the book and printing excerpts and such. Does anybody care about Stormy Daniels? I don't know. I guess people apparently do because it's always one of the top stories. And I read the excerpt from her book, and I have to tell you, I thought it was <laughs> repulsive. I feel that... Yeah, I didn't. Well, too much information. I didn't want to know Dude, that. TMI. <laughs> too much information. You know, that is a part of my life I'll never get back. And I think if people read that book, they're just going to, you know, cast away time and energy. They could be reading something else. But the um, prestigiousness, the eloquence, eloquence the, of, the, of the presidency, I feel, has, got, has been diminished in a way. When that information comes out about your world leader, I think it's pretty awful. I think any world leader that has an information coming in about them, I think it diminishes the, you know, the, the prestige of the office. So are, are people going to think anything less of them about it? No, I think it's just surprising and it's not surprising. I mean, more information comes out about him on a regular basis than I can ever remember from any other sitting president. So, again, I think it probably emboldens his, his supporters and it further alienates the people who will never would have supported him in the first place. Do people care because it's his personal business? I mean, is it different if it's Stormy Daniels versus the Manafort deal? I believe so. I believe so. Because whether people like or dislike the president of the United States, that is their president. That is the president of their country. So I feel that they have much more of an emotional connection to them, willingly or unwillingly. So I think they're more inclined to to care. And it's also the idea of when we drive down the road, we don't stop to see a person holding a sign that says peace and holds flowers. We tend to slow down when we see a massive car accident. And the way some of these stories are occurring, it seems to be a massive continual car accident. It's getting pretty crazy. I think people have no... um, nothing to do but to stop and take a look all right uh, being a pr expert i can't let you go without asking you uh, about this story which is uh, coming out in our can- in our country coca-cola is in talks with a canadian cannabis company to look at making infused drinks how does this play with the image of an american company like like coca-cola i mean this isn't a Coors. this isn't you know uh, a cigarette company or anything it's 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 as american as apple pie and chevrolet how do they balance getting into this industry especially w- within your country it's not as widely accepted as it is here at this point well knowing how toxic coca-cola is and knowing that if you can clean battery acid with it and you can clean your toilet <laughs> with it and to drink it i think is an act of self-disdain the fact that coca-cola wants to infuse cannabis in it, if it you know, diminishes some of the negative health results mm. of Coca-Cola, maybe that'll be positive. I find it intriguing. I find it interesting. And the fact that one of the most recognized brands in the world is willing to take a chance on this is a foretelling sign that I think that it's not just a U.S. consensus, not just a Canada consensus, but I think it's a world consensus that we're probably going to move to a much more greater acceptance of cannabis in our lives. It'll probably be as common as alcohol. So... You know, obviously, they've put a lot of time, effort, and energy into researching this. It probably is not going to fail like Coke Zero and some of these other brands that they've had, spin-offs that they've had. It's very intriguing, and uh, I kind of hope they succeed. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Will it damage the brand? Because they're not normally known for that. Or I guess at one time, you know, the, 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 pro- the formula did have something in it, but certainly not, uh, you know, of late. D- does this damage the brand as being, uh, will people look at this differently because they're in this industry? I don't know on the offset because we'll have to see how trends materialize. If it turns out that the elements of this new cannabis-infused cocaine lead to people getting into accidents or they're having overdoses or they're having health complications, I think that would be a detriment. If they find out that children are, are drinking this, it would be pretty bad. But Coca-Cola is one of the most recognized brands on the planet. So I almost feel like it would take so much energy, so much negative press over such a long period of time to diminish 
their ability to uh, connect with an audience, I, I think it would be very difficult. Coca-Cola, again, it's not just what people say, it's the visual images. And there are people all across the world that just collect Coca-Cola bottles and yeah. images because you know they think it's a great company. So I find it interesting, and I think it's amazing that they've taken the chance. A company like Coca-Cola is similar, I think, one way to Nike is that when they are so, they've done so well for such a long period of time, they know their business probably better than anyone else. They probably know their business better than even the consumers know themselves. So the fact that they're getting involved and taking a chance, I think is a major indication that we're going to see a global acceptance of cannabis. Now, if Coca-Cola made a drink that had Jack Daniels in it and it was Coca-Cola and Jack or it's Coca-Cola and some other type of liquor, I think they'd be in a much worse position. But uh, cannabis seems... To be Why is that? Why do you think that? Well, because, because there's some that may say, geez, that's a great idea. Why don't oh, they have yeah. that? But that, uh, then what happened was they would, that you would have all these people that are against alcohol yeah. that would be coming out and say, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I think that the alcohol has a much more negative um, consequence and right. a much more ne- negative uh, image than cannabis does at this point. The cannabis is kind of becoming a, a you know, person that's kind of being brought out from the cold. People are accepting it in a very um, positive fashion right now. Now that, uh, say, a, a, a iconic U.S. brand like Coke is interested in such a thing, will this sway officials in the United States and, and get them jumping on board or giving it a second look if for nothing more than economic reasons? Well, I feel that all politicians are, are little puppets. And you dangle a few dollars in front of the face and they'll compromise on their values. So I, I'm not even worried about them. I almost feel if the, if the public embraces this, the public and the consumer will, will drive it. So could Coca-Cola doing this have an impact on it? I'm sure they will. I'm sure that some of these politicians will, will see dollar signs saying that, okay, well, if Coca-Cola can do this and we get more money for our state and then they become more popular, they'll stay in power for a longer period of time. So I wouldn't necessarily follow what politicians are doing, but I would follow the public reaction to it. And the public reaction, I believe, their acceptance on a global scale of cannabis is becoming so positive that I think that that is there, that is driving the legislation to uh, decriminalize it on a worldwide scale. Is this different from the old days of prohibition? Is this different? Um, I don't know. I almost feel it's worse because the, the cops will raid your house. They'll do SWAT team raids on your house if they think you have an ounce of cannabis. And I don't know if the cops, the police officers, were doing that during the era of mm. prohibition. I mean, the fact that they would want to criminalize anything. I mean, you take a substance in your own body. That's declaring that you know your body is not your own. So you know, I, I don't. Know, I tend to think that whatever you do with your own body is your own decision. But at the same time. It does have an early. It does have a comparison to prohibition. Ryan McCormick has been with us. Goldman McCormick, PR, based in the states. Ryan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Well, it is a great honor to be with you and your listeners. Thank you so much for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on nine hundred CHML.